0: Among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats.
1: Am I impressive or what? (laughs) So uh, let's dispense with that little introduction that I just made. And first of all, I want to say that uh, my wife and I are two people among many who are trying very much to surrender ourselves to the preeminence and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And for years we've been trying to do this. Not always successfully, but in this particular passage, uh, we are given a wonderfully sublime image of what it looks like to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And may God just richly, richly bless us as we put ourselves to this text and as we allow the awesome, awesome mind of Jesus Christ to infuse us with the heavenly virtues of Jesus Christ. Right on? So what I want to begin with is Paul's words. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. If I'm understanding Colossians correctly, Paul had never been to this particular town named Colossae. He didn't plant the church. This is a Jewish man who is writing to some Christians in a town in what we would call Turkey today. This isn't Jewish country, uh, but Paul is exceedingly interested in expanding the kingdom of Christ all over the world. And so he writes this letter to these folks he, he knows a little bit about. He sent one of his friends off to help them, but he doesn't know much about them. And he starts off by saying some things that I personally don't think that I could share. I don't think that I would easily be able to write a letter to somebody, to some gathering of Christians off in Arizona or Maine or Florida or or Uruguay or Ukraine and tell them that I'm willing to suffer in their behalf. That I would have a good attitude about that. I just, I'd just i like to think that I could do that, but to tell you the truth, I don't think I could. Because I'm more interested in my own self than I am in lots and lots of other people that I don't know, and I'm also quite interested in not suffering. Do you have something in common with me? Okay, as my microphone is falling off my ear. And so Paul says these words I rejoice in suffering for your sake. Now, I just told you that my wife and I are trying to order ourselves under Christ's Lordship, but we don't like to suffer. Uh, we've seen just as many commercials as you have, we've read just as many novels, stories about U.S. culture. We know that everywhere there is this rampant belief that you and I should not suffer pain. And if things are uncomfortable, something is busted, something is wrong, and somebody needs to fix it, or it's fine if we leave. Isn't that front and center U.S. culture? And Paul has just taken a completely different approach I rejoice. I have a good attitude about suffering for you folks I've never met before. And then he goes on and adds this crazy, what seems to be crazy, but which is actually very, very sensible, very, very virtuous statement. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, Strange verse. We are very, very accustomed to teaching and preaching and communicating that when Jesus, the Messiah of the Old Testament faith died on the cross, that once for all, he established the done deal. That sin and suffering and all of the implications of the kingdom of God were established, dealt with at the cross and at the resurrection, at the rolled away stone. And that's true. But what I also want to share with us that Paul believed in addition, so we put it this way, the atoning work of Christ at the cross and at the rolled away stone finished it all in ways that were very much like when God said to his people centuries earlier, his, his Jewish people, I give you a land up north, because his people were in Egypt, and I want you to go up north, and I want you to inhabit the land. It's mine. I own it. I give it to you. The deal was done, except that God wanted to indwell his people as his people entered the land and displaced the people who thought the land was theirs. The land was given to them. It was theirs. But God said, folks, you go in and you take it. Both are true. I give it to you, and you must take it as I am with you. Okay? So coming back to the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, it was all finished at the cross. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of, of Satan was dealt the death blow, yet our Lord Jesus Christ said, the once-for-all deal is true, and so is the step-by-step, block-by-block Yard by yard, taking of the kingdom of God away from the kingdom of darkness. Both are true, once for all and step by step. And so Paul says, Jesus told me that he is going to die on the cross, and yet his dying on the cross would not finish all of his afflictions, all of his sufferings. Now this fits within the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where God explained to his people, following the first sin, that there would be not a forever conflict, but a very, very long conflict going on between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. And the text says in Genesis 3 that the kingdom of Satan is going to hurt The kingdom of God, terribly. But the kingdom of God is going to crush the kingdom of Satan. Powerful conflict going on between the forces of good and evil. Hopefully you remember that idea. And this now is continuing on. Paul says this conflict between the two strongest beings, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Satan and God. This conflict is continuing on in spite of the fact that Christ has done the major work. He's done the heavy lifting. And now Christ has a body. Christ, who is in heaven, chooses to embody himself in a group of humans whom he indwells. Yes? Yes? And now Christ, in his own people, advances step by step, yard by yard, taking the kingdom of darkness away from Satan. The process, the process is just like all warfare. The process is one of pain. The process is one of suffering. And so... How on earth did Paul get to the point where he could say, I have a really good attitude about suffering for you? How on earth did he get to the point of saying, I'm suffering for you? Would you believe it? If you were in Turkey and somebody you had never met before who was in jail someplace where you didn't even know about wrote you a letter and said, I'm suffering for you, would you believe it? Does not that sound a little bit ridiculous? But from Paul's point of view, he says that's what's happening. He was in jail, and in his mind, he was suffering for people he didn't even know. And he had a good idea about it, or a good attitude about it. So you can see that we have a real significant task before us in the book of Colossians. How do we get to the point where we can reinterpret the pain that we go through? so that we see it correctly, and not so that we see it the way everybody else sees it. There's the challenge. I'm going to invite two friends to come up. Anthony, Zarn, and Monica, would you please come up? And I'm going to hand the microphone to Anthony, and he doesn't have much time, but he is going to share with you a story of pain that you will be able to resonate with. He's just, he's just, a, just a guy who has experienced something, and I'm let, letting you know now that you may well be asking a question, how does his story of pain and how does her story of pain relate to Completing or supplementing the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Anthony? Delighted to hear you, sir. Thanks.
0: Alright, is this on? Yeah, turn it on. Uh oh. I flipped it down. Is that the same thing? No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought probably not.
1: There's no lit, no light on right now. I don't think it's working. Okay. Try it. Hello?
0: No, no? Okay. Speak loudly. Okay, I'll speak loud. All right, so uh, thank you, Glenn. Um, I wrote just a couple notes here, so I'll probably be reading from my phone mostly. Uh, in the fourth grade, um, I started at a new school because my parents got divorced. Uh, they were fighting constantly day in, day out. Uh, it was a terrible environment. Um, but when I went to the school, it was an even worse environment. Uh, I was bullied daily. I'd even say hourly. Uh, it was hurtful. And I dreaded going to school every single day. Uh, It caused me to be self-conscious of everything. It made me feel small, uh, insignificant, uh, worthless. It made me feel like a loser. Uh, The way I explain it is um, imagine being in a frozen, cold tundra, completely dark, and you keep putting on coats to try and protect yourself from the harsh environment, but you don't get any warmer. You just keep adding more and more weight from each coat, and you're still just as cold. This eventually manifested in a desire for people to want me. If people would just like me, if I do this or that, then maybe they will want me. And that stuff still sticks with me today.
1: Thank you. Were you able to hear him? Yeah. Okay. Monica? All
2: right. All right, so this is a really difficult story for me to share. I was born in Mexico, and when I was a year old, my mother, sorry, my mother made the decision to leave a life of abuse and constant fear. With just the clothes on our backs, my mother and my siblings were on our way to make the journey from Mexico to the United States of America as illegal immigrants. I heard about this journey all throughout my childhood, reminders of the dangers, the risks, and the hardship one of the things I remember most is my mom sharing how supernaturally quiet we all were, almost as if we could sense the imminent danger our lives were in. Once I became school-aged, my mom began to warn me of the dangers of speaking about our status. One of my talks before starting kindergarten was to never answer any questions about how I got to the United States. Anytime my mom had to drive us somewhere, it felt like a nightmare. If you see a, cop- or a squat car, don't move, she'd always remind us. If we moved around, it would make her nervous. If she got pulled over, we'd, uh, we'd lose everything again and surely we would be deported. Anytime there was a headline about a family being deported, it became a teaching opportunity for my mom. She would say, this is why we do not tell anyone about our status. This is why we never act out of line. Look at them, she'd say. Their lives are ruined. Fear was constantly being poured into me, not just by my mom, but also through what I'd hear and read about. I knew nothing about my homeland. How would I ever assimilate? What kinds of dangers would I be faced with? These were all thoughts I could hardly bear. I believed that who I was was undesirable and that people around me saw me as as something similar to a vermin, dirty, harmful, detestable. I felt like a disease to the world around me. These beliefs left me frozen in a constant fear and shame of who I was. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, I'm not going to ask you if you've heard any pain. We could multiply their stories many times over. Okay. We've all tasted this kind of pain. Now, does this particular passage speak to Anthony and Monica? Does it speak to Glenn? I've shared with you before that my grandfather won my grandmother as bride. He was late in his 30s, she was 13, and he won her in a poker game. Okay, my grandmother then was married at 13, and she died at 42 with her body ravaged by alcohol. And I wonder why. (sighs) What that means is that my great-grandfather did something like sex trafficking. And my grandfather accepted the deal. I wonder when my dad had some aggression in him. Pain, 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 pain. Yes, a lot of pain. So Paul writes, I have a good attitude. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. How did Paul get to this point that he could see things this way? How did he reinterpret his experience? And according to the text, it took grace. It took Power from on high, that he did not have himself, undeserved goodness for him to see himself clearly, it also took peace, says the introduction to the, to this this letter. It took peace, the ability to put things together that he could not put together, so that things made sense in a different way. It took those two virtues. The text also says later on in chapter 1 this is going to take patience, that is the ability to suffer well, and it's going to take endurance because patience and endurance are two of the virtues of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, peace, grace, patience, endurance are necessary qualities for Paul to rethink this. On top of that, Paul says in his introduction to the book that this is all about spiritual wisdom. Okay? Wisdom, the ability to determine what is higher and lower goods. Paul needed wisdom to rethink his story. Paul needed wisdom to understand the significance of the Death and the resurrection of Jesus as it applies to the two ages of all of history. Now, I suspect that you have, have heard before that the Bible refers to history past and history future as two ages. One beginning is a time in which that began in Genesis chapter 3 when sin was coexisting with the kingdom of God and the two are to this day duking it out. Evil against goodness. Virtue against vice. And there is this battle that is going on to this day and therefore we have much suffering such as the Zarn's experience. And Paul, as he is putting together his Bible, putting together his faith, he begins to understand with greater clarity that Christian faith, particularly beginning with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, starts a second age. When Jesus died and when he resurrected, shot out of that grave, okay, he started the inauguration of the kingdom of God. This is a time that is not fully completed yet, not fully fulfilled, but in its essence, it's all present. And so there are the two ages, the, the age in which goodness is fighting against evil and the the age which has begun with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in which goodness and evil still conflict with each other but at the second coming of jesus christ evil is toasted roasted and done and saul or paul realizes that in this convergence of two times you and me living in two ages this ability to wisely discern how you and i fit in the two ages this requires wisdom This requires insight that's beyond us. And it requires a profound, beautiful, lively, energizing look at the significance of these two ages and how Jesus Christ is so central to both of them. And in the the chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, Paul writes, he says so clearly that that which is central to the winning, is Jesus himself suffering. Suffering the pain and the shame of the cross. That's how he won. Paul got it. And then, when Paul got the idea that the called out people the church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. That's, ek is out. Klesia, called ones. The ones who were called out of the first age. He got the idea that the called out ones, now this is going to be sound very, very technical, I think. The called out ones are the ongoing incarnation of Jesus Christ. Amazing! So that we are not just a social institution. We're not just a human thing, kind of like the Elks or the Kiwanis or something like that. Okay? We are a social gathering, but we, because of the work of God, are far more. We, as the called out ones of Jesus Christ, in a way that is beyond us, but yet is a way that is also very, very true, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ is made visible, he is embodied in the church with all of its warts. Paul gets this idea and says, Jesus Christ is still here in the form of his Holy Spirit and in the form of his church. And Jesus Christ is still here doing what he has always done. He beats, he conquers, he overwhelms the kingdom of darkness. Not at all. Not at all by using evil means to destroy evil. Jesus Christ conquers by using God's means to destroy evil. I'm going to repeat that one again. You and I advance nothing by returning evil for evil. We advance the kingdom of God by returning virtue for evil. Paul gets that, and he says, my Lord Jesus Christ suffered like crazy, and he is inviting me, and he is inviting us, his ongoing body, to keep the suffering going, okay? Now, that's hard for Glenn and Susie to embrace, because I've already told you, I don't particularly enjoy suffering. I'm not one of those guys who just loves pain. But Paul gets this, and he says, hey, I am willing. Matter of fact, I am willing to go back and reinterpret my experiences. Okay. This is where Anthony and Monica's story enters in. He was bullied. He was mistreated. He was given a taste of hell in the school corridors and particularly out in the school playground. He was given a taste of hell. Was he not? okay. was it sinful for a little mexican girl to go with her mommy and her siblings to cross a river to go to another nation now i suspect there are legal issues involved okay but i you cannot tell me that that little girl knew anything about leg- legality she was following her mommy and then as she, her life unfolds somewhere in the Midwest, she learns what it's like to feel the taste, the pain, the suffering of being an illegal. Okay. Now, we can't undo anything that they, that the, the school ground, the, the playground's happened. Okay? The illegal notion has happened. Okay? They were not followers of Jesus Christ at the time. But they are now, and they're still bearing the scars and the marks of that particular pain. Now, I believe that Paul, in this passage, is inviting Anthony and Monica and Glenn and every single person in this room to revisit your pain, particularly the pain, the suffering that you have tasted that you did not deserve. There is some pain that you and I bring on ourselves because we deserve it. not going to address that one right now but the pain which is ours that we do not deserve. I'm inviting us through the teaching of Paul the Apostle, let's reinterpret our story. Let's reinterpret the school ground. Let's reinterpret the the illegal notion through the lens of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is, When he came to earth, he was this confusing, complicated, beautiful combination of deity and humanity. Okay, He became a different person when he came to earth. He was the son of God when he came to earth. But when he came to earth, he also embraced humanity. And the text says in that wonderful poem in chapter 1 that As Jesus, the God human, did what he did, as he obeyed, as he suffered, as he paid the cost, as he suffered the shame of the cross, as he did those things, the text says something amazing. He says that he reconciled the powers and the principalities in heaven. Good night. The text says, if I'm understanding it correctly, that heaven was reordered because of what the God-man did in his suffering. Get that? Now, I'm no expert on heaven. I'm no expert on what was going on with those powers and those principalities. and I just don't know very much about it. But the text says that heaven was reordered. And then Paul comes along and says, I am made a steward of this stuff. And I choose to suffer. I choose to suffer. I choose to reinterpret this so that I can love and love and love in the face of pain. Anthony Zarn, Monica Zarn, I invite you to rethink your story, which you did not deserve, through the lens of what Jesus has done for you through what Jesus knows of you because he knows every ounce of the, what you experienced. Okay. And so you get, Anthony, you get to know something that Jesus knows well. You have been rejected, you have been bullied, and so was Jesus. Monica, you have tasted something of being an illegal. And through the mindset of your mother's fear, mother's shame, you tasted something of the shame of it, Jesus, your Christ, came from heaven, he created the whole place, and he came as an unwelcome visitor. And he was treated as an illegal. And he loved, and he loved, and he loved. In spite of when he was shamed, in spite of when he was abused, he kept on loving And as you were suffering your shame, you were completing, supplementing, the sufferings of of your Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to rethink it and get to the point where emotionally you can say, I'm a privileged woman, I'm a privileged man. Friends, I want to repeat, we do not, we will not advance the kingdom of light by running from pain. We will not advance the kingdom of light by having nothing to do with pain. Because if we have, are unwilling to deal and to embrace, to accept pain with godliness. We are unwilling to accept Jesus' way and we are unwilling to step into the virtue called patience. Okay, So I'm asking us, join Susie and Glenn or let us join you. Let us not invite pain, but when pain comes, let us face it with our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we have opportunity to suffer pain that we do not deserve, then let us say, God, this doesn't feel good. I don't like this, I'm not very comfortable, but I actually want to have a good attitude about this because in some way, I get to supplement. I get to carry on the tradition of suffering for the sake of righteousness. Now, I've got just a couple minutes before it's time to end. Let's go on in the chapter. I'm going to read something that is mind-boggling to me. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from which uh, from God that has was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his his saints this is talking about those two ages okay there is something mysterious there is something about these two ages and particularly this second age this new age that was n- unknown i don't think it was completely unknown but i believe it was largely unknown and now paul begins to say it to th- to them, God chose to make known how great among thee. Here is this an amazing word, the Gentiles. This is Paul, the Jew, writing to folks in what we call Turkey today, folks who were not Jews, and the whole Jewish faith is about Jews. Yes. Not completely, because we do have the Abrahamic Covenant that talks about reversing the curse for all the people groups of the world, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But that didn't get very well emphasized in the Jewish faith, okay? It was a bit de-emphasized. And along comes this stuff, and he says, I am very, very pleased to suffer for you because you are Gentiles. And I happen to believe that Jesus, the Messiah, intends to reach the whole world. And I am so interested in advancing the kingdom in places I don't even know the people. I'm so interested in advancing the kingdom where people that I love hate those folks, where there's racism, where there's partiality, where there's condemnation, where there's partiality, all this kind of stuff. Paul says, I am excited about this, and I want you to know that. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I've always read this as Christ in me. But Paul was writing to people he didn't know. He says, what's exciting me is Christ in you. So the kingdom gets to expand. And as you respond to this glorious, glorious message of Christ, then he uses this really, really wonderful churchy word that hardly any of us understand. I've got a little bit of understanding, but please don't believe that I understand it very well. Glory. Now, what in the boonies is glory? We can certainly say that glory is impressiveness. It's... The Hebrew origin of the word is that of weightiness, so, so weighty that it grabs people's attention. The Greek notion of the word is so filled with light that people are startled and amazed. It's, so it has this idea of, whoa, hard to deal with. And, and so as we, the doctrine of, the, of glory unfolds in the Bible, it's this notion of whenever God's people... step into line with God himself in such a way that they become something like what they will be like in heaven, then people are amazed. That's what glory is. Glory is the beginning approximation of what you will be like, what we will be like in heaven. And because it is so different, so beyond what we know here on earth, jaws drop. People fall to their faces. People shout. People clap. People sing. People can't contain themselves because glory is so impressive. But what I really want you to get is this point: is that it's natural because it's something of the eternal, something of heaven coming into human experience in you. That idea you get through? Yes. Cool. Cool. I just got to explain a really complicated notion. I think you got it. Yeah. Okay. So, Paul writes to these folks, Gentiles. That's a bad word. That's a bad word for for Jews. You ever heard of the word goy? The Hebrew word goy? It's the word for nations. Hebrews, Jewish people say, goy, goyim, peoples. Okay? That's that's not nice. And Paul is writing to goyim. And he says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So let's us drink of the wonderful wine of the kingdom of God that says that Jesus Christ is highly interested in reaching goyim. He's highly interested in reaching people that our culture doesn't like, that our culture doesn't accept but Jesus doesn't care very much about that. Matter of fact, he cares a whole lot that we don't like that. So Christ in you, Turkish folks, the hope of glory is this idea that makes him so excited that he is willing to suffer now because it's a pleasure. It's, It's stepping into heaven itself for him to wipe out the cultural prejudices of the people, to wipe it out. And extend goodness and grace and beauty and love and virtue to people who are considered unworthy of these gifts. Paul says, Please step into this. I give myself for this goal, and I invite you to step into this goal. Now, let's take just a couple more minutes. Let's finish up this paragraph. Christ in you, the hope of glory, verse 27, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, you can see why wisdom is necessary, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, mature. You might think, well, I don't know what you would think. When when I read this word mature, this is the word teleos. This is the verb form. This is what Jesus said when he was on the cross just before he died. He said tetelestai. Okay. Can you hear the same word? It's the verb of the same thing. It's like when the purpose is accomplished. That's what Jesus said. My purpose is accomplished. Uh, my reason for existence in this stage is now done. Okay. Paul says, I labor, I work to present every person, bring that person to the point where he or she has become what he is de- or she is designed to become. This, in a, if you want to use a big fancy word, particularly a word that you might read in, in the philosophical circles, this is teleology. It's why do we exist? This is God working in people so that we become, in practice, not just in theory, the very people that we were designed, that we were created or recreated to become. That's what Paul is saying. I work my tail off okay, so that people I don't know, people who are considered enemies and scum of the universe by my people, I give myself to you anyway, with great pleasure, And then he finishes off the paragraph by repeating the theme of suffering. For this I toil, struggling, says the ESV, with all his energy, struggling. I'm going to give you the Greek word and see if you can pick it up. Agonizomai. Do you hear the agony? Agon? Okay. He says he works at the ministry of the kingdom of God in an agonizomai way, the same way that the Olympic athletes deprive themselves of much. They work, they work, they work for the goal. And they are willing to say no to many, many good things so that they might do the best job possible in their athletic performance. And Paul just brings this notion over into faith and he says, I put myself under self-imposed suffering pain because of the possibility of the greater glory of that which is to come by helping people become what they are recreated to become. So, let let us seek the wisdom. Let us seek the energy. Let us seek the everything that it takes for us to become people who give the preeminence to Jesus Christ. Not just at a worship gathering when it's wonderful and relatively easy. Let's seek to do that out in the street when we're facing temptations, when we're dealing with pressures, when we're dealing with being ridiculed and mocked and looked down on because we happen to be choosing to lovingly oppose the ways of the age. That's hard. That's really hard. That's a part of what they're facing. Let's become people who lovingly oppose the pain that the age inflicts upon us. And let's become people who not only lovingly oppose that pain, but people who embrace the values, the virtues of the age to come the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And in the process, you and I not only get to love, but you and I get to step into this wonderful, strange word called glory. You become glorious because you become more like Jesus Christ. And as you become more and more like Jesus Christ, there's nothing better than that. Nothing. May God bless us richly. Anthony and Monica and every single person who has a story, something like theirs, I, I pray, I pray that you might experience the high privilege of reinterpreting your pain correctly in light of the age to come so that you can see the pain that you have suffered as something that can take you further, deeper, higher into God himself.